Hey everyone, welcome to the Monday edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and I'm joined today by Mercy Pilkington, and we're going to discuss um, publishing, e-readers, e-books, and a whole lot more. How's it going, Mercy? Going great. So we do have some breaking news in regards to indie authors who self-publish on Amazon. Apparently, Amazon is developing... Uh, a competitor to the Square Reader, to the PayPal Reader, where indie authors will soon be able to, uh, you know, process transactions for their books. What do you know? Well, of course, we know that the Square Reader and the PayPal Reader are great tools, and I said. Unfortunately, the problem is authors don't often think of themselves as business people. So we know why even you know folks who like to go to yard sales or flea markets or these trade days things will bring a square reader to take tra- transactions right there on their phone. Um, it's a great way to reach an audience with something that might be a little pricier than just what someone has cash on hand. Um, so much of our society gets away from carrying cash a lot. Um, but I think the problem is a lot of authors don't think in terms of needing to be available to sell one of their books at a moment's notice. So what happens all too often is they end up telling a potential reader, um, here's a copy of my book, you can just have it for free, which is always a good thing to do in terms of generating discoverability, but it doesn't result in a sale. And they're also giving away their print copies that they've had to pay for, or on the other hand, having to say to the person, hey, my books are on Amazon, you should go check it out. And the reader says, absolutely, I sure will. And, and then it doesn't happen. People get busy or they forgot the name of that author they met. And so having one of these devices, which it's allegedly going to retail for $10, um, which is the same price for the Square Reader or the PayPal Reader, if you buy them locally at a store. Um, Having one of those, and of course Amazon has now launched Amazon Wallet, so there could be a seamless transition to selling your books, selling, excuse me, selling any product, but especially your books, through a a reader like this, just makes great sense because you're able to say to somebody, not only do I have a copy of my book I can sell you, I've also got a mechanism for you to pay for it and not have it take cash on hand. Um, Also, and that's, that's just for your spur-of-the-moment sales, of course, but also authors are wholly responsible for setting up their own book signings, their own book tours, their book talks, selling at festivals. I mean, you'll see authors who who buy a table at an event and just sell their books from that event. Mm -hmm. Again, you're relying on people to have cash on hand who are willing to give over the price of your book, knowing that it's going to dip into the amount of cash they've got to attend the entire event. So being able to take debit or credit cards is really a tremendous tool for authors who are so used to doing it themselves. There's a lot of you know, author events that uh, transpire every year. I think back to about a month ago when the annual Romance Writers of America a uh, big event happened, and you know you have thousands of of you know self-published authors, traditionally published authors. But you know, aside from signing autographs and talking with fans, it's an avenue to sell books. And a lot of the indie authors, like you said, basically giving the books away because they were unable to sell them uh, directly. You know, people tend to carry less cash on them nowadays they tend Mm -hmm. to have their debit card or their credit card and you know they if they're at a store and they pay something for like three dollars they'll pay for debit like i'm always at starbucks and people are always putting like you know uh, a small coffee 
you know, 99 cents on the right. debit card. <laughs> and it's not because that's a lack of cash. It's just because we're transcending to be almost a cashless society. But I, right. I can really see how this Amazon reader um, will allow self-published authors to be able to more directly sell their books to uh, people that they meet. And I, I would say probably more at, at things like Book Expo America or, you know, the romance writers or a, a number of the big self-publishing events that happen every single year. And this kind of puts the power in their hands to be able to um, generate some sales. And I think that this is a good move. I, I posted the wallet app the beta app on the Goody Reader app store a few days ago and people are seeming to really like it. I mean, for those of you that haven't really used it yet or don't know what it's about, um, the Amazon wallet app is basically the equivalent of the Apple passport system where you could have all your loyalty cards uh, stored in one area. So you could pay for your Starbucks and your Starbucks digital cards listed there. Uh, but it's also paving the way for this new square reader and rumor has it that it's coming out August 9th. And I don't know if it's going to be a stealth launch, but it seems as though that uh, retail giants like Staples uh, internally, that's when it's slated to go on sale. Uh, Mercy, you recently wrote uh, an article that's garnering a tremendous amount of attention about the author earnings report. And a lot of people tend to skewer uh, this report. Uh, tell us what author earnings is all about and what your article uh, had to say. I will. Um, I, I had the chance to interview Hugh Howie this week, and we had a great talk for about an hour uh, involving you know, author earnings and other facets of the industry that are still kind of contemptuous towards self-publishing. Um, basically, I had reached out to Hugh after being informed by a competing news site that the methodology of the author earnings report is just bad. I think the quote was actually bad data. Um, and basically questioning why Goody Reader continues to share news of the author earnings reports given that it's such bad information. Um, the interesting thing is every time I see a comment on any kind of article about author earnings and someone is dismissing the claims, no one can back it up. No one has a link or a report or an analysis that can demonstrate what is so horrifically wrong with the author earnings report. And that was my question to Hugh is, you know, what are they talking about when they say this is bad information? And he's blown away by it, too, because as he said in the interview, anybody with a pencil and a web browser can come up with the same data that the author earnings report comes up with. Now, we've actually heard some laughable statements, and I don't know how anyone sits through an interview with a straight face when someone says, we don't even know who this data guy is, so we can't believe the report. Um, there have been speculations that data guy is not even human, that it's just a number crunching bot <laughs> and all kinds of information, which is interesting because data guy posted a, a quite lengthy comment yesterday on Passive Guy's website. So uh, there is someone claiming to be data guy who's able to type at least. Um, and not to be refuted by Hugh Howie, who also uh, was posting on that right. thread as well. 
Right. Um, and, uh, and so basically, I, I point blank asked Hugh, first of all, let's get this out of the way once and for all. Who is Data Guy? And he just laughed because this question keeps rearing its ugly head. And he, he's like, uh, why does it matter? You know? And so um, he, he did confirm Data Guy is a human. There is a person named Data Guy. It could be as many as three people he alluded to. Um, and at one point, the discussion went to the fact that it could be his mom who was a math teacher. And uh, I, I told him I was really excited about that possibility because I've seen his mom and so it'd be nice to be able to claim that as a journalist I've seen data guy <laughs> but uh, he, he would not elaborate on that and but so though, really, for sorry to cut you off but for yeah. those of you listening that are not familiar with what data guy does data <laughs> guy is more or less the analytical right. expert that extrapolates all the big data that they get from Amazon in terms of book sales uh, you know top sales uh, how much of each genre is selling right. and then they ex sort of extrapolate all that big data into something that's a little bit more readable and a little bit more cohesive. Exactly. And as he said, it can be done with a pencil and a web browser. Basically, Data Guy or the team of people who might be Data Guy um, sits down and does the legwork that any one of us could do if we wanted to take the time to do it. And I've noticed that those reports are coming quarterly because they are a tremendous amount of work. This last report examined 120,000 books on Amazon and other platforms. Um, of course, we're looking at traditional and self-published books, and he simply producing the numbers that show what percentage of the overall pie indie authors are taking and what percentage traditionally published authors are taking. Um, the ranking, people keep claiming they can't know how a book is selling on Amazon. While we cannot decipher the actual specific numbers of books sold, every book has its ranking listed. So when you go to the sales page for every book, which again, we're talking about clicking on every book for 120,000 of these books and seeing what the ranking is. Um, the author earnings report has done this for a specific date where they've just taken one day and examined all of these. Um, they've, they've taken voluntary information from authors who've admitted their sales numbers anonymously um, and use that to compare and as well as answered questions about their publishing route, how many books they have and things like that. Um, Howie did mention a really interesting facet to this data guy mystery and it is that they are all writers, everyone who's worked on this, and they all could stand to have their books deleted from Amazon for violating the terms of service. So we'll notice that the author earnings report is very careful to avoid saying this author has sold this many books. That is not allowed by terms of service and that's not only limited to Amazon, that is all book retailers. Um, there are a few book retailers, major ones, who even have more stringent guidelines than just that. Um, and he did say to me in the interview that the night he was about to press publish on the author earnings website, he said, I really wondered if I was going to wake up in the morning and find my account gone, <laughs> you know, that, that they'd had enough of me and they, they deleted my books. Um, but again, they're very careful not to violate those terms of service, but it's understandable why someone does not want his name associated with it. Um, and of course the comments on Passive Guy related to this article, people were very clear about the fact that Data Guy would be subject to all the, the controversy and the, and the same mudslinging that we've experienced in terms of you know, the validity of the report and things like that. Um, it continues to be very polarizing, which is strange. It's just math, that's all it is. But it still seems to be drawing absolute acolytes versus complete haters so well it's, it's interesting it's, the author earnings reports 
I think that a lot of reputable news outlets use that data in order to write better articles. You know, I read The Guardian and The Telegraph and The New York Times, and a lot of the times author earnings info is referenced. And then you read digital or digital only publications such as, you know, Publishers Weekly, uh, Digital Book World, and a number of other sites that kind of paint author earnings, I think, in a more negative light. Um, a lot of companies, don't forget, they also do their own reports. I know Publishers Weekly and Digital Book World and a number of other sites, they do their own mm -hmm. reports using their own methodology, but it's a for-profit endeavor. So it's almost like it's good business to be able to tear apart competitors' reports in order to better promote and sell your own reports. So you have to kind of take people that dissect author earnings or uh, blast it in a negative light, um, you have to kind of look at what do they have to gain by doing it. And it seems exactly. as though that the people that are tearing it apart the most have a lot to gain by tearing it apart because they make their money by selling their own data. A publisher's lunches is the same way where they write a lot of articles about it, but it's behind a paywall. So you have to pay them an annual subscription uh, rate in order to even read the articles, but then they also do their own data reports, which they also pay for, and right. the bookseller in the UK is the same way. So it's sort of hard, it's getting increasingly hard to trust data when it comes to the publishing industry because it seems as though that everyone kind of has their own um, ulterior motive to mm -hmm. blast the competition. And, you know, for us with Goody Reader, I, we don't charge for anything, you know, all, mm -hmm. of our, all, of, all of our articles, all of our content, I mean, it's free, we don't, we don't charge anything. So right. I like to think that we're a little bit more unbiased than the average publication out there. I would hope so, and I will say I, I have been accused, and I, I can agree to some extent that I have a pro-Indie and pro-Amazon slant in some of the things I write. Really what I have is a pro-decision-making slant, and that really is all the author earnings report has ever claimed to be. It's not a proof in the pudding to say that one publishing route is better than the other. The original focus and the continued focus of the report is simply how can authors make a good choice with their writing when they don't have all the information. And so when they're still being told in, in mega conferences that traditional publishing is the way to go, it's the holy grail of book acceptance, how can they know that if they don't know what authors actually earn? Um, they're, they're going on a 400-year-old social club basically if they're not being told why this route is going to be a better choice for you. Um, we've talked before about Holly Ward, excuse me, H.M. Ward as she writes under and she's she's talked about making a decision book by book on where she's going to publish. Is she going to self-publish, take a traditional deal, what have you. And she sat down very recently with her most recent title and, and discussed it with one of the big five publishers. Looked at their contract, looked what they had to offer her and walked away, walked away from $500,000 because they couldn't show her how they were going to do better mm -hmm. for her book than just this amount of money. So basically, she couldn't see a plan beyond 501000 You know, they, they had no plan in place for that, and she left it. And she ultimately did very well with that book. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that authors need to understand in order to make good decisions. And that's all the author's earning report has ever claimed to be. 
Scholastic Storia is a digital platform that's been going on for a few years, and it allows uh, kids and parents alike to be able to buy digital titles and read them on a myriad of devices. They have apps for iOS, for Android, and for another of other operating systems and it's been going well i mean for those of you that have ever gone to a scholastic book fair at your school story is mainly the digital equivalent but they are suspending the service and focusing more on education with their scholastic for education program you recently wrote an article about it and heard some feedback from scholastic uh, what's the exact story with scholastic storia why are they closing what's happening to titles that people have purchased over the years well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that Goody Reader is free because at least nobody paid to read my mistake. <laughs> I heard from representatives at Scholastic today, and I am not too proud to admit that I did misinterpret some of the information that came out in the shareholders report. There are lots of things in my article that were completely accurate. There were some things that could lead people to feel very alarmed. So first of all, the biggest mistake is I didn't have the year. I'm sorry for that. I had that the books, you were eligible for a refund if you contacted Scholastic by August 1st. Unfortunately, that is this Friday. <laughs> and it's August 1st of next year. So parents have a whole year to contact Scholastic if they want a refund on their eBooks. And that's going to lead to talking about your big article next. Um, but the story of platform itself was just a purchasing platform where parents could buy vetted content by grade level, by ability level, and trust that it was great scholastic material and that it was age appropriate, content appropriate, of course. Um, but with the push in April to launch the story a streaming platform, which is available to parents, it's an ebook subscription service of more than 2,000 titles by Scholastic and a couple of other, other publishers. Um, they launched that in April, and parents now have a subscription service, which is taking off. Subscription reading is gaining huge ground in the industry. So what and they're so, doing is instead of selling books one by one, they're selling like sort of the Netflix of eBooks right. model, where you pay a subscription model and you have access to all of their books rather right. than on a title by title basis. And mm -hmm. I guess the way that it's working now is that if you have purchased titles, then by August of next year, or even before, those books will disappear. So as the Storia platform is, you know, down, uh, is suspended or removed, or they, they sort of depreciate uh, the system, um, you'll basically lose access to all the books that you've purchased. And, and I think right. that's the big story here, whereas and you get another ebook store decided that selling ebooks directly was not a viable uh, business model and everything that you've purchased will basically disappear but Scholastic's doing the right thing and, exactly. and, and refunding anybody that requests it but at the same time the average person is just blissfully unaware that Scholastic story is closing and that there are refunds available, and that they are going to a Netflix for ebook subscription model. I mean, you know, we we write about all this stuff, but at the same time, the average parent doesn't read Goody Reader. Right. The average parent doesn't read the Scholastic Story a blog. Um, the average, you know, parent or or children might fire up the Scholastic Story app maybe like once a week or once every few weeks, or you know, make a title purchase on on a month by month basis. Not everyone's a voracious 
reader like we are. So <laughs> a lot of people are more casual. And I, I'm just afraid that like one day people will wake up and all of a sudden all the books that they've purchased and the hundreds of dollars that they've spent will they'll be like, where's our books? Where, where did everything go? <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, and I, I think you're right to applaud Scholastic and saying, you know, whether it was highly announced or quiet, either way, by saying, we will give you back the money for the books you've bought. Um, and that's an important distinction because, you know, countries around the world, not just the U.S., have long been fighting with what is an ebook? Is it software? Is it a download? Or is it property? And uh, of course, we saw this with laws throughout Europe, um, various laws that the pricing mandates, for example, that books had to be priced the same throughout the country. So ebooks had to cost the same as their print counterparts because they were a book, but at the same time, they were also software downloaded. And so they were taxed at a 19% VAT instead of a 7% VAT, like books were in some countries. And so that kind of thing happens when we just don't know what to do with this new technology. Nothing's intentionally saying, hey, we're going to shut our ebook store and rip all your books off your device for you. I think it's just a, a contingency plan that a lot of companies haven't really factored in yet. What's going to happen to all those consumers' content when, if we close? And to answer that question, I wrote a pretty long article today about uh, consumer protection for ebooks because in the last few years we've seen books on board, diesel ebooks, fiction wise, J Manga, Scholastic Storia, and the Sony Reader Store all shutter their doors. In a lot of cases, all of your purchases basically disappeared overnight, or you had very small windows of opportunity to be able to download and back up your content. And when I mean limited, it's often a week or a month at the most. And Again, a casual reader just uses the their reading app for iOS or Android. They they read their books once in a while. They'll buy a new book, and if you've missed that window period, you're out of luck. All of a sudden, the app will give you a warning sign saying this app you know this app store is closed. This reader store is closed. Um, you can no longer buy or read content. And I think that a lot of people feel really disenfranchised about digital books and. They, it's, it's very concerning because uh, the ebook industry is doing nothing but growing. Um, the Association of American Publishers said that all adult trade ebooks brought in $1.3 billion in 2013, up 3.8% from $1.25 billion in 2012. Ebooks now account for 27% of all adult trade sales. You know, Amazon makes over a billion dollars a year just on Kindle book sales. Uh, it's big business. And I think because it's big business, we need some sort of consumer protection that if a store closes, we can either get refunds or get our books. And there's, you know, stories and cases all over the place about how people have lost their account. Uh, look at uh, the Hugh Howie author earnings situation. It was a legitimate concern that if you say, this is how much I've made as an author, this is how many books that I've sold, it violates Amazon's terms and conditions. And they could basically uh, destroy your account, remove all your books, remove all of your history, and 
you're starting from scratch basically and right. we've you know heard stories about a Norwegian woman trying to purchase a Kindle ebook from the UK bookstore and her account was banned uh, her banned sorry and if you try to circumvent uh, the digital rights encryption system uh, Amazon may revoke your access to the Kindle store and block any of your content removing it without any fees so I'm kind of just worried that retailers could close and everyone who purchased content is just out of luck and this basically just comes down to when you purchase an ebook there's no clear path of ownership you're basically buying a license uh, right. whether it's being distributed to you in the cloud where you're just reading it within an app and you're not actually ever downloading that book to your device or you know you're downloading that book and you're using Adobe digital editions and everything like that uh, so yeah I mean Mercy how do you feel about this do you think that we need any consumer protection from like the government level or do you think that you know the digital uh, millennium act or anything like that needs to be changed to be able to stop these companies from being able to go out of business and just we lose everything because of a licensing agreement I think I'd be more okay with the current situation if two things happened first of all if consumers were absolutely made completely aware that you are not buying a book you are borrowing a software download for the life of this company so I think that's a, the greater problem is people waking up and you know the bookstores closing and like you said they're not up on the latest publishing industry news so they just don't know where their books are and where their content is my bigger problem and this is probably opening a can of worms if all I'm doing is paying to use a license on a book why does it cost the same as a print book and as the publishers are fighting to drive the prices of ebooks back up to where print is, how can they do that with a straight face? If I run the risk, you know, let's say Amazon finally closes tomorrow the way people keep hoping it does, if I'm going to lose all my content in my app, how can you claim that, I, that it should have cost the same as a print book, which I'll own forever? If I can't do anything else with it, like loan it to somebody, you know, as, as some people have fought against. If I can't check it out from the library at the same price as a print book, you know, for the library because it's not the same thing, then how are you charging the same thing for it? So I, I think while I'm never in favor of massive government control over industries, yeah, something has to give. Either we have to really make sure consumers are treated fairly and that they're not overcharged. Or we have to have someone step in and say, you're not able to take these away from people. Yeah, I guess the, the way that it's working now is the publishing industry basically polices themselves. From time to time, there is government intervention, as we saw with uh, the publishers colluding to establish a uniformed ebook pricing system to allow other bookstores to be able to compete against Amazon. And as mm -hmm. we've seen uh, for the last three years, just the Court and Apple just drag out and it's, you know, appeals and counter appeals and damages and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a drama. But, you know, from time to time there is government intervention, but at the same time it's protecting the interests of the companies and not really protecting the interests of the people that are uh, buying books from these companies. Right. And, you know, I really do feel that we need to find out what does ebooks fall into? Is it the first sale doctrine? Is it the copyright software rental amendments? Is it the Digital Millennium Copyright Act? What is it that 
ebooks really apply to. And uh, you know, obviously, all of this stuff just basically is United States based. And you know, things in France and Spain and Germany and the UK. There's different laws, but it seems as though that these ebook resellers they have the same licensing agreement basically for every single market. So it, I think it's almost impossible to be able to protect consumers. But my fear is that sure, it's one point three billion dollars the ebook industry right now um you know in the u.s but what happens in five years from now when it's four billion or five billion and just everyone wants to be the next amazon and then they find out that it's not viable and hundreds of thousands of people who bought books all of a sudden it just disappeared i can't think of another industry that does that it's only ebooks you know if i if i buy a game it's it's mine even if that game studio closes um, right. You know, if, if I buy like, you know, anything locally, you know, if I go to my chapters and buy a physical book or if you went to Borders and bought like, you know, books for Christmas presents or, you know, for, for birthday presents or books for yourselves, if Borders goes out of business, it's not like you have to return those books. <laughs> suddenly those books will like be like a vampire in sunlight. Well, it'll be like, exactly. yeah. you know, and it'll right, just the self-destruct the button on all your books. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and that's really the thing is if we're making a comparison that these are not books again stop treating them as other books and demanding higher prices on ebooks um again back to Hugh Howie he's pointed out that it's not about saying that these are the same and authors should be compensated publishers should be compensated the same in terms of sales you know if the publisher makes twenty dollars on the print and only seven dollars on the ebook I'm just picking random numbers there that's not what's driving it what's driving it is that they make far more money on print sales than they do on ebook sales so they're trying to bring that price up to match the print they're afraid of a, a massive exodus you know where people are are headed to ebook still and not just buying their print well one thing that uh, you know there's one company that is basically bucking the trend and establishing a clear path of ownership and this is Comixology this is a company that was purchased by Amazon and uh, they're the largest digital comic reseller out there and they basically uh, just announced a new DRM free initiative where comic book publishers and people who are self-publishing comics could actually allow users to back them up. And this is a quite a departure from the methodology that Comixology has employed all these years where it's a cloud reading app. You basically download the comic to your tablet or to your smartphone, but you have to use the Comixology app to write it, but you can actually back those issues up. But now Thrillbent, Image and a number of other comic companies that actually publish in DRM-free formats, they can actually now allow users to save these. So if Comixology ever gets absorbed entirely into Amazon, you do have those local backups that you could load on your e-reader or your tablet or your smartphone or even just read with your favorite comic reading app on your PC. So I, I, I do applaud this. And you know I do applaud companies like Tor that uh, are a science fiction and fantasy imprint where they went DRM free, and they have been quite vocal about, despite the fact that we abandoned uh, digital rights management and did not increase piracy, and even Pottermore, uh, the company that started in order to sell digital copies of the Harry Potter series, they never noticed a, uh, an increase in piracy either, and they used digital watermarks, which, you know, 
uh, Mercy, if you buy a book from Pottermore, then it has your name on it and sort of a hidden little watermark. So if you upload it to a file sharing site, it's pretty easy for them to track down who is the person that bought it and who is the person that shared it. So they could, you know, um, come after you <laughs> with like wands and broomsticks, I assume. <laughs> I, I think it's far more about basically just encouraging people not to do this. And you mentioned Pottermore, and that was a very interesting dynamic. A lot of people spoke out once the, the Harry Potter books became available, the ebooks became available, and said, yes, I own a, private, a pirated copy because it was impossible to get a legitimate copy. And now that I have an option, I'm going to go buy them again. I got them from a file sharing site, but now I want the author to get her due, and I'm going to buy them again, even though I already have them. Of course, supposedly, <laughs> the one on Pottermore looked far better and had all the, the artistic work and the professional layout and things like that. Um, and there were, of course, any device you wanted without any kind of formatting issue. But I, I think that speaks to what people have said. Uh, long said about this industry is that you know readers are going to do what they want to do and putting in, putting things in place that impose on on honest readers is not fair first of all because it doesn't work it doesn't stop people as as you said Tor pointed out not only did piracy not go down when they instituted DRM piracy remained the same on their titles sales didn't go down either and so people were still just as happy to buy their, their content, even though they knew it was now easier to get a pirated copy because of the DRM encryption. Okay, so I'm going to give you some stories, and I want to get your thoughts in quick, you know, in, in quick uh, segments. Rapid fire, we'll go, yes. All right, so it's like <laughs> rapid fire questions. So okay. uh, Wisconsin-based parents and libraries are concerned that classic novels are being removed from schools. Uh, a lot of school and middle school and high school libraries, they have like maybe one librarian or two at the most. So during the summertime, uh, the state, which basically the state education department, basically runs in there looks at the books that are, you know, almost destroyed or books that have not been loaned out in a number of years and then they either destroy the books or that they put them up for donation to, you know, uh, you know, distant disadvantaged uh, people. So what Wisconsin-based libraries are concerned about is that the bulk of the books being destroyed are classic novels, uh, Catcher in the Rye, uh, you know, Plato's The Republic. It's basically books that are not speaking today's youth now do you think that schools should basically abandon the classics because this is the way that it's working right now in wisconsin absolutely really yeah <laughs> okay first of all as an english teacher yes absolutely um i'm all for the libraries not not holding shelf space for these things um, because there are far more engaging content like you said that speak to today's students that we really want them reading. Is the purpose of the library a source where students are going to come find something really great to read and, and actively engage with it, or is it a book museum? And so what I would love to see happen is all these great classics are stored in digital format where they don't have to take up shelf space. So your library could have the 10 books that everybody wants to read right now on a table in the middle. And then your, your classics of everything else, your digital works are all around the room. Um, of course, also, I don't know that Wisconsin has taken into account the fact that most of these classics 
are free. They are public domain, and so they're available on many ebook retailers at zero cost. Um, there will be some cost if someone has done a really great version or an enhanced ebook version, but many of the so called classics that students had to read two and three generations ago in public school are now basically free on, on a smartphone, a tablet, an e-reader, whatever. Okay, uh, Nielsen Book Survey has just decreed that the share of books bought as gifts fell from 24% to 22%. This may not sound like a lot, but basically 9 million less books have been bought as gifts by people in the UK. So what do you think about this? I think it's far too easy to say that people are placing less value on books. I think the the flip side of that coin, the way to really look at it and take encouragement from it, is that people are reading in such great numbers that you know you don't buy someone a book. It's too personal. There's too many options. You might be buying them a, a gift card to get a book. But I think if you look at it from the standpoint that we are seeing book traffic happen in higher than ever numbers, this great renaissance of reading is taking place thanks to digital and other, other aspects. For example, price, book prices coming down. Um, I think with so many people reading and falling in love with books and hanging out on sites like Goodreads, that people say, you know, I really shouldn't presume to know what you want to read and buy you a book. Apple just purchased a company called Booklamp, and uh, Booklamp basically does a lot of analytics and big data. Uh, they could look at a book such as Salem's Lot by Stephen King, and uh, through their metadata and uh, big data, say, okay, this book is about vampires and supernatural, funerals, death, uh, memories, uh, homes and domestic environments, pain and fear, negative emotions, and it could kind of uh, you look at the book and say, okay, at this point, this happened at this point this theme has occurred at this point this main character has introduced it's similar to amazon x-ray so what do you think that apple will do with booklamp well we know that that there's a greater focus on reading with the ios update that the ibook store is a lot more streamlined it's an app on the home screen and there's all your content your ability to buy books is going to be even more increased we know that apple is really pushing once those those court mandated impositions left. They're really pushing their ebook store on, on their consumers. Um, and so I think this is just another facet of wanting to be a go to bookseller for their own clientele. I'm sure it hurt to have to establish the Kindle and Nook apps for their beautiful devices um, because that's what people were used to reading. And I, I don't see this. Uh, I saw a lot of headlines today about, you know, Apple's trying to take down Amazon with book discovery. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as just offering something else to their clients. Uh, Booklamp has a great tool. It was um, a fairly inexpensive purchase as far as corporate buying goes. Goodreads sold for at least $150 million by some reports. Uh, some carried that number closer to a billion. Um, and so when Amazon bought Goodreads, it was a significant investment. Um, uh, Apple appears to have gotten Booklamp for between 10 and 15 million. So, I mean, that's, um, I hate to say it, but that's pocket change to Apple. And so they basically got a not only a great technology, they also got the team. They moved the employees, apparently, to Cupertino. Um, I love that this was investigated by TechCrunch, and, and they based it on Facebook posts that were now coming from Cupertino on the part of the, uh, the Booklamp staff. So even though they still listed Boise as their hometowns, they were all 
Facebooking from from California. So uh, I think it's a great thing for Apple. I hope it does great things for readers. The American Library Association has said that uh, 90% of all libraries now loan out ebooks up from 76% in 2012. So these are 2013 uh, figures. Do you think? I mean, obviously, this was a poll where they talked to, I think, about uh, a few thousand libraries, and they were managed to extrapolate, you know, trends across the industry. Does this make sense to you? Do you think that libraries in the U.S. truly ninety percent of them are loaning out ebooks? I think it's a very easy number, especially when you consider how many libraries are keep closing. That number's going to creep up the more libraries close. We're going to get to 100% before this is over. Um, the problem is those libraries are not loaning out great ebooks. They're learning out what they're able to get their hands on. Um, and that is not at all a slap at Overdrive or 3M or anyone else or Hoopla. That is um, actually a stab at the publishers. It's time to get on board. Stop claiming that you support libraries when you're only putting your mid list in, when you're uh, charging 300% markup on the price of an ebook when you're mandating checkouts and things like that. Stop pretending that you're supporting libraries. Um, right now, ebook catalogs are very frustrating for patrons because of the, the lack of great content. We've seen library lending works and we've seen subscription models work. So it's time for the publishers to understand that and get on board. Finally, uh the first movie trailer of Fifty Shades of Grey has come out, and in February they've recorded the 100 millionth book sale. And in 2011, uh, they had such that that book and that series did so well that. Uh, Random House gave everyone a $5,000 bonus for Christmas, and this was janitors, this was people all <laughs> up and down the company. So do you think with this book coming out February 2015 that we'll suddenly see a renaissance of Fifty Shades of Grey displays in all the bookstores? Uh, if you like Fifty Shades of Grey, buy this Sylvia Day book or buy this Maya Banks book. Do you think that we'll suddenly see a dramatic increase in erotica sales in the bookstores? If I give you a dollar, can you make it not happen? Well... <laughs> Actually, I think we will. Um, that's very logical. You know, when we, when we have any movie franchise come out, then... You know, the, the book sales obviously go along with it, go hand in hand, and there's a lot of cross-marketing. Um, I would love your second point to really be what happens. I don't think there's anyone left who doesn't know what Fifty Shades of Grey is at least about um, or hasn't heard of it. Um, but I would love for it to be a surge of acceptance for other authors. You know, where, like you said, where if you liked the movie, you're going to love the Sylvia Day book, you know. Um, so a lot of cross-promotion. I think... I have to say, the book did a lot for public acceptance of the genre. Erotica is nothing new. It's been around since the Greeks learned to write. I mean, it's not new. Um, but acknowledging it is very new. And you have to give E.L. James and then, of course, her publisher later uh, a lot of credit for that in making it a part of the mainstream culture. Um, I actually went somewhere the other day and the teenager behind the desk, I'm sorry, maybe college student behind the desk, had a copy of the third book, you know, right there, open on the counter, and I, I kind of called her on it, and she giggled, and I was like, oh, well, it's a book, you know, at least you're reading, <laughs> and so, so right there at work, you know, there was a copy of, uh, I think, Fifty Shades Darker, Freer, whatever the third one was. 
Okay, so this was a rapid fire, and uh, we've pretty well reached uh, the zenith here of the Goody Reader Radio Show. If you have any comments or questions about anything that we've talked about on the show, you can leave a comment on the post on the front page of goodyreader.com. Uh, we're also available to listen to on iTunes if you're a fan of the podcasting software. I'd like to thank Mercy for joining me today, and you can catch up with the latest digital publishing ebook news and e-reader news every Monday as me and Mercy do the show uh, going forward. Uh, Everybody, thanks for listening and take care.